Hello, and welcome to the Crossroads Podcast, the show where Mark Meckler and Rita Peters discuss hot-button issues from a biblical perspective, helping to equip other Christians to bring light to a darkened culture. Rita is the Senior Vice President of Legislative Affairs, and Mark serves as the CEO and co-founder for Convention of States Action. Find out more by visiting conventionofstates.com slash pod. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. I'm Rita Peters, and I am joined once again by my faithful co-host, Mark Meckler from Texas. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I'm really excited about today's show. I've been following this case we're going to talk about for a long time, so I'm looking forward to diving in. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it, Mark, because I'll just let our listeners know, Mark and I have never discussed this case before. So you're sort of getting our um, live impromptu discussion of it. The case that we'll be discussing is an important issue of race relations in America today. And it's pending currently before the US Supreme Court has to do with affirmative action policies in college admissions. And um, before I get into the case and sort of give a summary of the case, Mark, I wanted to stop for a moment and examine why we're talking about this case and this issue on crossroads where faith and culture meet. And the reason is our God is the God of justice. And he cares about race relations. He cares about justice. He cares about loving our neighbors. We know that before him, there is no racial division. You know, Mark, I'm studying in my daily quiet times right now, the book of Colossians. And I was reminded of Colossians 3.11, which says, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And then it goes on to command us to put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So that's why this issue should matter to every Christian because it's about justice and it's about how we love our neighbors in society. Anything you would add to that, Mark? Yeah, I would take it back even further and going all the way into the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Bible. One of the things that I think was so radical about the Hebrew Bible is it was the introduction of what we refer to as you study faith, ethical monotheism. And what that means is the idea that we believe in one God, monotheistic. It's a monotheistic faith. Obviously, Jews and Christians believe in the same God. And the idea that it is an ethical framework for living your life. A moral framework for living your life. If you look at all religions that were pre-Judaic religions, they didn't believe in monotheism, nor were they ethically based. In other words, it wasn't about good and evil, right and wrong. It was about pleasing the gods. <clears throat> and, you know, you had different gods for fertility and all this different stuff. But under ethical monotheism, the idea that all people are created in the image of God was introduced. And so we all stand in the same place before God. We're all judged in exactly the same way. We all hopefully live our lives to a very similar set of standards based on ethical monotheism, all rooted, ultimately go all the way back in the Old Testament to the Ten Commandments. And so this is just a different way of looking at the world that was introduced 
in the Judeo-Christian framework of how we view the world. And when you're talking about cases like we're going to talk about today, where people are being judged on the basis of their race, I would argue it flies in the very face of the deepest roots of ethical monotheism. Absolutely. So the case is Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, and there are actually two cases. So there's the case against Harvard, and then the same group of plaintiffs, Student for Fair Admissions, also have a case against the University of North Carolina. But the issue is basically the same. So these lawsuits concern racial discrimination in affirmative action programs in college admissions. And um, the first one, so I'll just focus on the Harvard case, claims to discriminate against Asian American applicants specifically. And the second one focuses on the University of North Carolina's use of socioeconomic factors in administration. Um, both of these cases are seeking review of the Supreme Court decision from 2003, Grutter versus Bollinger. And in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court validated the use of affirmative action programs in college admissions as long as race was not the sole deciding factor. So that was basically all <laughs> the guidance that the Supreme Court left us with. And, you know, that just set up a mess. The whole question of affirmative action has been a mess, wouldn't you say, Mark? Yeah, it would. And the idea that race could be the sole factor, that doesn't make any sense. And and it also allowed colleges to get around any kind of scrutiny of this because they could say always that race is just one of many factors. They could weigh race as heavily as they wanted. They could make race literally 99% of their consideration and everything else 1% and that would have passed scrutiny. So it set up a huge mess. It allowed affirmative action to continue long past its overdue date. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that really is one of the key issues that the court is concerned with is the length of time that this kind of policy has, has gone on. So in order to really set up the legal background, which I think is important for people you know, who who haven't followed these cases as closely as, as others have or, or aren't legal experts, I think it's important to give you a little bit of understanding of these background Supreme Court cases in order to understand what's at stake and what's going to be decided now. So Grutter versus Bollinger, the Supreme Court upheld the use of race in college admissions. That's the that's the main takeaway point. And what's interesting about that or unusual is that usually any kind of racial classification triggers the highest form of scrutiny known to the law, strict scrutiny. But in this case in 2003, Greta versus Bollinger, the court found that a college's interest in student body diversity was what it calls a compelling interest. However, the court did say specifically that that interest in achieving diversity in the student body would diminish as state-sanctioned racial discrimination becomes further and further into the past. Now, even at the time of this decision that we had Justice Scalia 
and Justice Thomas, who's still there, they were on the court, both on the court at that time. They both staunchly opposed the idea that the government could ever have a compelling interest in classifying people based on race. And Mark, I love what Scalia said, and I captured the quote from him. He said, where injustice is the game, turnabout is not fair play. And how how could anyone disagree with that? <laughs> a lot of people do nowadays, unfortunately. I want to jump a little bit back, and I want to reassure anybody who's watching this. I know Rita and I are both lawyers who studied constitutional law a lot. You don't have to be to understand this stuff. And so I think sometimes people kind of tune this stuff out because they think, I'm not a lawyer. I don't understand what the Supreme Court's doing. So I, I want to just simplify this in the way that I think about it. Uh, you mentioned the term strict scrutiny. And basically what that means is there are levels of review that courts apply depending on particular situations. And in, in a case like this, where they're looking at something that's racially discriminatory, the court has said, we're only going to allow that under the most extreme circumstances. So what a state has to show or a government has to show is that one, the interest is compelling. There's something incredibly important that they're trying to accomplish that has to be accomplished. And then they say that it has to be narrowly tailored to accomplish that compelling interest. In other words, there's really no other way to do it. This is the only thing that can be done. So in the first case that Rita was quoting Grutter versus Bollinger, they did say there is a compelling interest in diversity. We can argue that. I don't agree with what they're saying there. Uh, but they were also saying that, that you know, they're reviewing and saying, is there a narrower way? In that case, they didn't say there was a narrower way. And I think Scalia and Thomas's dissents are really important. Thomas, by the way, if you've read his life story, he's a guy who actually took advantage of this kind of uh, advantage, affirmative action, uh, and he hates it. He because I should I should rephrase that he didn't take advantage of it. It was available at the time of his admission to Harvard Law School, and so what he says is for his entire life, people have looked at him and said. Uh, an affirmative action case. We get it, you weren't really qualified to get into Harvard, but you got in because they wanted some kind of racial diversity. And the reality is that Thomas earned his way in on his own merit, it had nothing to do with his skin color. And so he says it diminishes his and the accomplishments of others like him. And that's part of his argument. And one is a moral argument, just simply that doing bad things to people to right injustice is always wrong, but also just that the people who come in under this regime, their credentials will always be questioned. Yeah, and I think that is such a great point. And frankly, I have always wondered why more people didn't see it that way. You know, I wonder why people who are ostensibly being favored or, you know, getting this special treatment don't see that as insulting. You know, they they don't need the special treatment. They can achieve on their own. They don't need other people to be handicapped in order for them to achieve. So yeah. I, I love that that point. And I think we'll come back to that. Um, the other case, and this was so interesting, Mark, and is also why I say and you seem to agree that the courts made a mess of this in 2003, because on the very same day that Grutter which we've just described was decided, the court decided another case, Gratz versus Bollinger. And there, 
the court struck down the University of Michigan's affirmative action policy, which was a policy that awarded points to applicants based solely on race. So the majority in Gratt said, well, that policy is not narrowly tailored enough, referring to strict scrutiny again. The policy isn't narrowly tailored because it's not holistic. <laughs> Whereas it was saying the policy upheld in Greta was more holistic, considered more factors. What were you going to say, Mark? I don't know what that means. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> does. This is when the Supreme Court wanders into really murky areas like this and uses words like holistic, which means kind of a look at everything. It's really essentially by its nature an undefinable term because everything. Yeah being holistic is really undefinable. And the Supreme Court should be very careful about wandering into the use of terminology like this, because what they're going to do is exactly what they did here, which is everybody out in the States went, what's holistic? How do we design a holistic policy? Nobody knows. And, you know, it seems like, unfortunately, the court tends to do this a lot. When the court gets involved and they create these, you know, these tests or these um, scrutinies or frameworks that, you know, they, they think are so smart, but the problem is no, everyone's just going to fight about what they mean because there is no objective meaning to it. It's just completely subjective. But I mean, so, they came down with this bottom line is that race can be considered as part of a holistic approach. <laughs> so again, if you can figure out what that means, then you're way ahead of any of these school administrators or any lower court judges. Right. So we have more litigation over this. That's that's what we do. All right. So fast forward to today, current case, students for fair admissions um, versus Harvard and then versus University of North Carolina. So students for fair admissions basically outlines a process of admissions that focuses on students' race from beginning of the process to the end of the process. And the result is that students who are on the same academic level with comparable grades, comparable test scores are treated very differently depending on their race. And that's really the issue. And I'll give just one example, Mark, that was cited in the, in the petition before the court. An African-American student who's in the fourth lowest academic segment of applicants has a higher chance of admission to Harvard than an Asian-American student who is in the highest academic segment. So, you know, I hear that they, they've proven that the evidence is there. Doesn't that strike any fair-minded person as just unfair? Yeah, and you know, the, this case is so interesting to me because it intentionally is targeting Asian students. And the discovery showed that what these schools were doing, what they were saying is, yeah, we have too many Asians. Asians are just doing too well in the process. So can you imagine that you're a young person and you've worked incredibly hard since you were very young, you've done all the studying, you've done all the preparation, you scored very highly on your entrance exams, you probably have literally to get in there a 4.2 GPA or something like that, you've written an incredible essay, and then they say, you know what though, you're Asian, 
So we're going to let somebody in who's less qualified than you, and you're not going to get your spot. And imagine how that feels. How is that just to that kid that's worked that hard their whole life? The parents who have sacrificed to provide all the things for the kid to allow them to work that hard. And the schools are saying, yeah, but we just don't want any more Asian people. And it's just an outrageous thing. By the way, there's a long history of this. At one point at Harvard, they did this with Jews. Too many Jews were getting into Harvard. And so they just decided no more Jews at Harvard. And so this is something, this kind of discrimination has been done by these institutions for a long time. It's outrageous, it's offensive, and it should be deemed offensive by any right-thinking person, in my opinion. Absolutely true. And, you know, Harvard admits that it discriminated against Jewish people back in the 20s, but yep. it says, oh, no, now we're good. This isn't discriminatory. Well, yeah, I, I want to add one, one more thing that came out of Discovery, Rita, that mm-hmm. is so offensive to me. They were docking, quote unquote, points in their holistic approach from Asians saying that they were poor leaders and exhibited poor leadership qualities. And the reality is in virtually all of these cases, they'd never even spoken to these Asian students. So they had no idea whether these people were good leaders or not. And they had made a categorical decision that people of Asian descent were poor leaders. I mean, that is so outrageously inflammatorily racist. When I read that, I just couldn't believe that anything like that could exist in modern society. Yeah, it's totally outrageous. So, Mark, I want to dive into some of the underlying issues in this case. The first one I want to talk about is just the issue of diversity or, you know, the buzzword diversity in today's culture. And I want us to think about, do colleges truly have a compelling interest, as the courts have said they have, in diversity in the student body? Does diversity contribute to education? And if so, what kinds of diversity? You know, what do you think? Is it legitimate for the court to say that a college has a compelling interest in diversity among the student body? I mean, maybe in diversity of thought. And and that's as far as I would go. You know, you went to college, multiple levels of college, as did I. I never thought about, oh, this college is better and I'm learning more because there are Asian students or black students or Hispanic students or Jewish students. What challenged me and what I found interesting was diversity of thought, where we would get into the classroom and I might be more conservative than the person next to me. I might be less religious than the person next to me. Uh, Even maybe I was raised in a less wealthy family than the person next to me, but I never looked at anybody's skin color and thought, wow, it's so good that there's a person of Asian descent sitting next to me because they must have a different perspective on the world because they're of Asian descent. But I never thought that because that's called racism. <laughs> my family didn't teach me to be a racist. They taught me Martin Luther King Jr.'s idea that I'm judging people by the content of their character, what they think and how they act, not by the color of their skin. Yes. And, you know, I I was raised on that, too. It, it's that, you know, the quote from Martin Luther King Jr., judging people on the content of their character and not the color of their skin, we've turned all of that on its head. It's hard for me to understand why more people aren't crying foul about that. 
And, you know, the thing that bothers me about the the whole concept of diversity in the way that it's used in today's culture is I don't understand why colleges really just seem interested in certain types of diversity, which is really what you're pointing out, Mark. They're interested in diversity in race, gender, and sexual orientation. I don't understand why, if true diversity is really the goal, why don't we see the colleges looking just as hard for diversity in rural versus urban students? Students with parents who are divorced, students who are raised in a single parent home versus married, um, sports preferences among the student body, weight, height, interpersonal communication styles, musical tastes. But it doesn't seem like that. It seems like they're just interested in race, gender, and sexual orientation. And I would go a step further and say, it doesn't even really seem like they're interested in diversity of those things. Diversity is a phenomenon that occurs in society as a result of many differences among people. But it seems like the colleges want to treat diversity as a trait that some people have and others don't. You know, like if you're female, you're diverse (laughs) because you're not male. Um, If you are a racial minority, then you're diverse. If you are homosexual, you're diverse. But that's not what diversity really is, right? This really bothers me, Mark. Yeah, what they're really trying to create is a monoculture, right? So the idea is there are certain favored categories of human beings, and they believe that those categories should be dominant. Those should be the dominant cultural view in society, And so this is an effort to impose their view of what should be the dominant culture on the United States of America by making sure that those people are getting into the universities and are a dominant culture. And by the way, once they're on campus, uh, and I know you have kids on college campuses now and they experience this, the quote unquote diverse crowd, which are absolutely a minority in number crowd, are now the dominant force on college campus. And there's there are very rare exceptions, you know, Hillsdale and maybe Liberty, some of the religious campuses where this is the exception. Or, but the rule is, if you're part of this diverse group, if you're gay, if you're a lesbian, if you're black, if you're Hispanic, if you're a woman, and preferably if you're several of those all at once, then you're going to be the dominant culture on campus. And this is part of that project of creating that dominant leftist culture on college campuses. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, Mark, I recently had the experience of touring a college campus with one of my kids, and um, I was really kind of shocked. My child happens to be a white, heterosexual, Christian male, and throughout the tour of the campus, we were repeatedly told that, you know, for African-American students, here's a service that we offer to our African-American students. Here is something that's available just to homosexual students or transgender students. We were told about all of these services, you know, special buildings, special clubs that they could be in. You know, some of them are offered 
um, peer-to-peer mentoring by virtue of their belonging in that particular category. What I never heard was anything, any of those things that would have been available to my son. And that's, you know, that's really disturbing to me as a parent and thinking about what his experience would be like as a student when, you know, it, he didn't really seem welcome there, to be honest. Yeah, what they've created, again, this is, you know, we talked about the, the root of our society's ethical monotheism. I would argue what they've created here is non-ethical cultural Marxism. Uh, the the idea of cultural Marxism that sounds like a big fancy term again I don't I don't want to act like it is basically what they're saying is that we're going to upset all the norms in society that's what Marxism is all about and we're going to do it through the culture and one of the ways that you dominate the culture is through the educational institutions so they're setting up this idea that we have to blow up traditional standard culture uh, through a Marxist model. And that's what they're doing here. And these cases are right in line with that. And that's why we're talking about this. It's really important to understand that these discrimination cases, these cases that are trying to keep people out of school based on their race, are part of this cultural Marxist idea that we're going to blow up society as it currently exists. We're not going to have a merit-based society anymore. We see this in so many ways, but this is really at the root of it. Let's keep kids out of the best colleges even though they deserve to be there on merit because we don't like their race. Yeah, it, it's a real problem. So we've addressed the issue of diversity. Now, of course, we have to talk about discrimination, which is exactly what you're describing, Mark. And for me, the bottom line is considering race and admissions, at least in the ways that we've seen colleges do it so far, results in discrimination against some students. It results in discrimination against individual students. Like you described before, the student who has worked really hard, maybe dreamed their entire life of going to Harvard and disciplined themselves to do what it took to qualify to get there. And now we have these colleges creating a dual standard. Students from some races have to meet a higher standard to get in, and students from other races are held to a lower standard. As far as I can see, that is like the very definition of injustice. <laughs> Again, I'm gonna simplify, it's disgusting. I mean, yeah. it's despicable. I put myself thinking of myself in that position if that happened to one of my kids, how horrified I would be that it happened to one of my kids that, they worked so long, so hard, they absolutely were qualified for admission and they were denied and get, that spot was given to a lesser candidate, a candidate who was less skilled, less accomplished, just because my student was the wrong race. And I would go so far as to say, if Harvard is 100% people of Asian descent because they work the hardest and score the highest, well then God bless them that they should have the best people in there that they possibly can. It should be based on merit, not on people's skin color. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, you know, we, we talked about the individual harm to the students who are the victims of discrimination, but you also referenced earlier the long-term societal harm because we are, by allowing these sorts of policies, we're allowing deep-seated feelings of resentment 
and bitterness that, you know, why do our, our policies and our systems favor some people just because of their race? And we see all of the racial unrest in America still today. And Mark, I really believe that policies like these don't help with that. They make them worse. Yeah, and then they actually harm the people that they allegedly help. I and mean, one of the things that statistics show clearly is when people are given preferential admission, their rates of finishing college are much, much lower than people who simply got in based on merit. And usually what happens is most of these people end up burdened by student loan debt, which the government has made non-dischargeable in bankruptcy. And so they don't finish college. They fail out of college. By the way, imagine how that affects their own their self-perception, their perception of themselves, right? So they're now college dropouts. They failed to complete a rigorous educational path because they weren't qualified for it in the first place. They were put in on some racial justice idea. So it's really bad for the people who it's done to. It's really bad for them long-term. Like I said, you gotta wonder, could I have made it? What do people think of me because I got in this way? There's just nothing good about it. And then the flip side is, of course, if you're Asian and you don't get in because somebody of another race took your spot with lower merit, I mean, there's going to be some hard feelings there. So I think it creates racial animus rather than resolving it. Absolutely. Mark, we're almost out of time, but I want to just get your comment on the idea that seems really popular among our institutions today that we should have as a society the same proportion of doctors, teachers, plumbers as the the number of that population in society, that it should all be proportional. Doctors, teachers, plumbers should reflect the number of that, you know, that race, their proportion in society. I don't understand where that idea comes from. It doesn't make sense to me. Why can't we just be happy to let people do the thing that they want to do and the thing that they're good at rather than doing all of this social engineering to try to make it all proportional. Where does that come from? Well, I think it comes from the distinction and the transformation of the word equality into the word equity. So equality means equality of opportunity. In other words, if a woman wants to go into a STEM profession, science, technology, engineering, or mathematics, there should be no barriers to a woman entering that profession, those professions, and they should be treated equally if they want to go into the law or medicine or whatever it is, or frankly, if they want to go be a garbage collector, there should be no barriers beyond the barriers that are necessary for the profession. And we live in a society that's largely operating that way. But when you flip equality to equity, it means outcomes are the same. It means you have the same amount of doctors who are men and women, the same amount of lawyers who are men and women, the same amount of uh, you know, high high electrical line climbers that are men and women. And that's just absurd because people make individual choices. And also, if you look at the equity crowd, when they look at things where their favored diverse subjects are dominating, well, they're not so much for equity anymore. Now, if you look at the teaching profession, uh, it's dominated by women, I think, because women are wired to be helping and caring of kids more than men. I think generally speaking, it's not always true, but generally speaking, way more women would prefer to go in the teaching profession. Do we need to now say, well, we got to keep women from going in and we got to advantage men? I think that's ridiculous. If you look at what's happening in our society because of this, you have way more women graduating from programs at every level and virtually every kind of program now. It's really unbelievable. 
more women are graduating high school, college, and postgraduate than men. We actually have a real crisis among men right now because we've decided women are the most important diversity class. If you have women of color, if you have a handicapped woman of color who's also gay, that's going to be kind of the top of the pyramid. And what that's doing is pushing men down, and men are really struggling in our society now because of this whole equity thing. It's a real crisis. Mark, we are out of time, but real quick, how do you think this case is going to come out? I think the Supreme Court is now ready to strike down uh, the use of race in applications for college. Uh, and so I think that's going to happen. I think the time has run for all of this stuff. But I would add a caveat. The universities are going to try and find ways to get around that anyway. <laughs> there you have it. Thanks, Mark. I'm Rita Peters with Mark Meffler, inviting you to join us again next week for another edition of Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads podcast. To learn more about Convention of States, go to conventionofstates.com.